This evening, I want to share with you uh, out of the book of Genesis, and in doing so, I want to look at chapter 28, because I believe that in this chapter, it records a story filled with some principles and some kingdom characteristics that speak to the God-honoring opportunity that this church has in this hour. I am convinced that not all moments are created equal. Every day has 24 hours. The sun rises and the sun sets. The moon and the stars come out. Uh, As the night gives forth to the dawn, the sun rises again and the cycle begins. Uh, But not every moment under heaven is created equal. And by that, I mean this. There are sovereign and divine opportunities by which scripture says the Lord draws near to us. And in return, we draw near unto him. There are these moments in time in the spiritual timeline of heaven by which God opens a window of opportunity. And we are charged to seize the opportunity of a lifetime. And I believe that for this church, we are coming into one of those God ordained sovereign moments where what we do over the following weeks and even one to two months will ultimately set up and determine the trajectory, not just of this campus, but of this entire church for years to come. And that's why I always say, never discount a moment in the presence of God because one moment can change every other moment for you. There are these God-ordained moments by which he does what no man can do. Words cannot explain, minds cannot understand, but in a moment, he'll pour out on your life in significant and incredible ways. A year ago, this Sunday, we did something at this campus we had never done before. It was called Holy Spirit Baptism Night. I taught on the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We made available that book that I wrote and we prayed for hundreds of people to receive and they did all across this room for hours into the late evening. There are moments in your spiritual life by which God sovereignly desires to do something significant, and it is how we respond in those moments that position ourselves under his mighty right hand, which leads to our promotion in due time. And I think so often for us as believers, we are not wise to the hour in which we live. When Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane, just moments before his betrayal, the Bible says that he goes into the olive trees to pray and then comes back to check on his disciples and they are sleeping. He admonishes them, tells them to wake up. This is an important prayer meeting you don't want to miss. Jesus goes away to pray again, comes back to find his disciples sleeping yet again. And he says something to them very interesting. He says, if you only knew the hour in which you lived, you would pray. Now the Bible says pray without ceasing. It's always a good time to pray. It's always a good moment to pray. Every time you call upon the Lord in fullness, he shows up in power in your life. But even Jesus identified that this was a strategic hour for the disciples to knock on the door of heaven and not give up on their spiritual dialogue with the Father if you only knew the hour in which you lived. And I believe that this church is coming in to a if you only knew the hour moment by which what we do with what God has given us will define and determine 
determine the trajectory for this church for years to come. We had one of those moments now about three and a half years ago when overnight the entire world shut down and all of a sudden people were talking about a new virus that was working its way through the streets and we didn't know how deadly it was or how contagious it was, but every time you turned on the news, it was like, what chapter of Revelation are we in today? And plagues are breaking out and wars and rumors of war and people are being locked in their homes and freedoms are being taken away. And like many others, we shut down temporarily for a moment. We didn't even know what we were dealing with. And over the next couple of weeks, I began to notice that it was okay if you could protest and it was okay if you could burn down buildings. It's okay if you could occupy city blocks in downtown Seattle and set up the autonomous zone. And it was okay as long as you agree with the government messaging to be out in the streets in masses. But God forbid that Christians gather in the local church. And as our board and our elders met and we began to pray and seek the Lord, I heard the Lord unmistakably, I heard him say, it is time to open back up. And so we did. We had just recently purchased the JCPenney building. My wife and I had just recently purchased a house for the first time in years after living with our parents for an extended amount of time. And all of a sudden the church shuts down. We make the decision to open back up and in one week, half the church left. And I'm thinking to myself, what did we just do? Did we sign our death warrant? Is the church gonna fold? Maybe we made the wrong decision. People who had been with me for years, I'm talking day one, sending me emails. I've never been more disappointed in you. You're not a real pastor. You don't care about people. You're gonna kill grandma. This is the most unwise decision you could ever make. We're out. (laughs) And it was like a panic attack for like weeks on end. I never forget that first Sunday when we opened up and people are like walking back in and they're like, do I wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? Stay six feet away. Remember how funny it was when you'd go in an elevator during the COVID season, they'd have little stickers on the floor where you could stand. One person stand here, one person stand there. That way you're immune from the airborne disease. And I never forget that first Sunday back. I mean, it was like, oh man. It's like the scripture says, our hearts melted because of fear. <laughs> and I'm looking out on the church and I said, oh man, I just, I just preached this church down half of what it was. <laughs> oh boy. And the next week, you know, five or six who hadn't been there the first week showed up and Another few showed up and then pretty soon we started getting letters from the attorney general's office and the health district's office. And they said, you're breaking the law. This is a gross misdemeanor. It's gonna turn into a felony. We're gonna put you in the county jail for 90 days. We're gonna fine you $10,000 a day. We're gonna file lawsuits against you. You're gonna go bankrupt both corporately and personally. They sent people to our church, health officers to our church, posted notices on our front door. They called me and they demanded a list of our donors. They said, we wanna know the names and addresses of every person who's donated to this church so we can contact, trace them. (laughs) I said, no. They said, we want a list of... 
They said, we want a list of every single one of your employees so we can trace them. And I said, well, you know, I just, people just kind of show up and work. And I don't really know, I don't really know who's who anymore. Tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees, death threats day and night, vandalizing the building, nasty blogs written online, news articles written about us. And by about month two, something strange began to happen. I'd walk into the church and it was a lot fuller than it had been the last Sunday. And then the next Sunday, it was a lot fuller than it had been before. And pretty soon we went from one service to two and then two to three and then three to four and then four to five. And then we bought a Seattle campus for six and a Kirkland campus for seven and one after another. I didn't know it at the time, but that was a decision made in a window of time a window of opportunity, watch, that would ultimately define the trajectory of the church for years to come. I'm telling you, as a church, I sense the Spirit of the Lord and the wind of heaven blowing on us again like he did in that moment. And I believe that it is what we do in the next number of weeks, even the next one to two months, that will ultimately determine the trajectory of this church for the next season. No, not all moments are created equal. But when the Lord draws near to us, if we would draw near unto him, heaven and earth would collide and the prerogative of the king will advance. <clears throat> and I couldn't shake it tonight. So I'm just gonna say it again. I'm just gonna be bold again. But I'm telling you, the Lord is getting ready to give us a property in Ballard, and I believe Ballard Campus starts tonight. I just sense it. I just sense wind. I sense wind, you know? How, where, money, people, problems, live stream, campuses, worship. I don't know. I don't know. I just say it and God does it. You know what I mean? And this is what Pastor Benny Hinn told me. He said, you want to grow the church? I said, yes. He said, make it easy on you and hard on God. He said, all you need is faith. Let God worry about the rest. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to let God worry about the rest. He is the God who does not sleep, nor does he slumber. He'll be up all night anyway. So I'll let him think about it. I'll let him worry about it. But I'm just telling you, I just won't be surprised. I won't be surprised. Because when the wind of heaven begins to blow, it'll stir up stuff you didn't even know existed. It'll cause dreams to come to life you didn't even know was there. It'll breathe new life into vision. It'll reach a prodigal. It'll reach a captive. It'll heal a sick person. When the wind of God begins to blow, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. But when it blows, you raise your sails. And God will take you in the direction you're supposed to be. Genesis 28. <laughs> I think we started another campus tonight, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. <clears throat> Genesis 28, verse 10. I mean, it's going to happen. Just watch. God will do it. God will do it. 
You know when you was like a little kid and um, you'd be on the playground and you get in an argument with one of your friends, you're like six or seven years old. And uh, I, I heard, I, I overheard my son Matthew telling this to somebody the other day. They was getting in an argument, who was better at soccer? You know, who's better at soccer? I'm the best, no, I'm the best, I'm the best. <laughs> and then finally, Matthew resulted in, in the argument telling his friend, he said, well, my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> now, number one, that's not true, you know. Um, but number two, I appreciate the childlike faith because there's something about a child who believes, watch, my dad can do anything. My dad can do anything. So when I'm in moments like this and I'm like, God, how, who, what, where, when, why? I just have to resolve back to that childlike faith. No, my dad can do anything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. My dad can do anything. His streets are paved with gold. My dad can do anything. Genesis 28, watch, verse 10. Now Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Now Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. <clears throat> Jacob has just stolen his older brother's birthright, taken his father's inheritance, and now has left home to go marry himself a set of sisters by the name of Leah and Rachel. Jacob got the blessing, he got the money, he got the women, he got the influence, he got the prestige. Did he have to lie, cheat, and steal his way into that position? Absolutely. But here Jacob is. He got what he wanted, yet he is still left with an empty soul. Look around today, nothing has changed. People got everything the world has to offer, but they are still empty inside. The rich and famous are still depressed and hopeless. Hollywood celebrities still take their own lives. Tech moguls still lose their marriages. Influencers still lose their minds. And it has never been more evident that folks have gained the world and yet lost their own soul. Culture says if you just have more, if I just had another sexual encounter, if I just had more money, if I just had a better house, if I just had a nicer car, if I just had the right job, if I just had the right relationship, if I just had the right platform, then I will have finally arrived. The woman at the well thought, if I just had another marriage. The rich young ruler thought, if I just had another paycheck. Lot's wife thought, if I could just take one more look. And yet the scriptures declare the opposite. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. <laughs> and isn't this what is so striking about the story of King Solomon? Near the end of his life, he finds himself as history's richest man. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines, thousands of servants, rules over the kingdom of Israel. And yet he declares in the book of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I can't imagine anything more tragic than checking all the right boxes, 
making all the right money, confessing all the right cultural creeds, using all the right pronouns, attaining social status, climbing the ladder of influence and reaching the end of it only to find yourself more empty than you were before. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this. I just saw this on, on, on social media today. There was a, a new interview with a Hollywood actor by the name of Russell Brand. The former husband of Katy Perry. And talking about how he's become enamored by a man named Jesus. Wearing a cross around his neck. He said, I can't shake the message of Jesus. I don't know what it's about. I've climbed the ladder. I've done the movies. I've had the all-star girlfriends and wives. I've got the money, the riches, the popularity, and the fame. But there is something about this Jesus. See, consumerism has taught us that the answer to all of life's questions is found in just having more. But just having more of the same stuff you had before doesn't change the spiritual composition of your heart. You don't need more stuff, you need the right stuff. You don't need more friends, you need the right friends. You don't need more opportunities, you need the right opportunities. You don't need more things to do, you need the right things to do. And here Jacob finds himself in Genesis 28, running from the problem he created because of his own insatiable lust for more. Hear me, friend, God isn't against your abundance. I believe in some ways it is biblical to ask for more. I believe in prosperity. I believe in blessing. I believe in resources. But until you have a right spirit, the more that you have been praying for will crush you instead of bless you. Watch the apostolic prayer of John from 3 John 1 and 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. See, the world says, get your exterior to prosper first because that's what everyone sees. And once you've convinced the world of your success, if you've got any energy left, maybe spend time on your soul. But the scriptures say, if your soul prospers, your life will follow. Yeah, it's true, man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And if your interior life is good, and if your spirit is healthy, and if your soul is prosperous, then you as a person become a container and a conduit for all of that which God desires to do. See, God is working on the container of your soul so that what he already desires to give you, it will work for your benefit, not for your downfall. See, instead of Jacob waiting for his father to bless him with what was already freely his, he took by deceit what he was always destined to receive by inheritance. And in doing so, created heartache and trauma for years to come. See, a blessing before the recipient is ready is no blessing at all. Friend, God is working on the container of your soul. Oh God, just give me a relationship. He's like, I want to, but let me work on your soul. Oh God, just give me that dream job. I want to. But let me first work on, on your soul. 
Oh God, prosper me in this area of life. No, I want to, I'm the author of prosperity. But first, let me work on, on the container of your soul. Before anybody ever knew about this church, before we ever had influence on, on social media, before we ever had five, six services with thousands coming from across the region, we were a small dinky little church that met at a historic church building on Cedar Avenue in downtown Snohomish, 126 Cedar Avenue. I'll never forget that place. The church couldn't afford to pay me full time. I had to supplement our income in order to put food on the table by cleaning out rats out of crawl spaces in houses in Snohomish County. Our specialty for the organization that I worked for was cleaning out rats and cleaning out bed bugs. It was the worst job I have ever had in my entire life. And I would have these conversations with the Lord, like what have I done to tick you off? I'll repent for stuff I didn't even do. Just whatever you gotta do, rescue me out of this. And the Lord just kept telling me, Russ, I'm working on the container of your soul. I'm gonna pour out a blessing and it's gonna blow your wildest dreams and imaginations away but I can't get you there until I work on you here. I've gotta do work on the container of your soul. Now watch verse 11. When he, Jacob, reached a certain place, when he reached a, a certain place, not, not, not any ordinary place, but a certain place, a set-apart place, a designated space, a geographic space, when Jacob reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep and watch, he had a dream. He had a dream in which he had seen a stairway or a ladder resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Huh. I love this. Jacob's mistakes were no match for God's promises. Jacob's shortcomings were no match for God's grace and God's mercy. You are not strong enough to screw this up because you've got a God who understands the end from the beginning and has already factored in every single one of your mistakes into the sovereign call and anointing that he has placed on your life, which is without repentance, meaning this, God never regrets calling you to the great dream that he has placed inside of your heart. Jacob has done nothing up until this point to deserve any reward from God. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a lousy husband. He shacked up with two sisters. He stole his brother's birthright. He's a professional liar. His name means supplanter or deceiver. He's destroyed his family. All he is doing is running from God. But when he reached a certain place, God said, that'll be enough running. Aren't you, aren't you tired of running, Jacob? <laughs> you know how tired you have to be, DB, to take a stone and make it a pillow and fall asleep on it? 
It's almost like I can hear the Lord speaking to Jacob. Aren't you tired of running? It's the testimony I hear just about from every prodigal that comes back to the Lord. They get to a place in their life where they're just tired of running. And what they find is a God who is more than gracious to meet them at the place of their need. Wipe every tear from their eye, erase every regret from their mind and reinvigorate the dream that has been there all along. In 1799, an English artist by the name of William Blake was commissioned to paint this scene from Genesis 28. It would later go on to become one of his most famous works. Now, I don't know exactly how it looked or exactly how it happened, but Jacob is running. He's got money, women, and family drama all on his mind. He is so tired, he takes a stone, turns it into a pillow, lays his head down, and falls asleep. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. The reason why God speaks to us in dreams is because for some of us, it's about the only time that we ever shut up. So God takes the opportunity to open the eyes of Jacob's spirit to see heaven's reality all around him. You know the reason why God shows Jacob a picture of heaven? Because when you see the eternal, it helps properly order the temporal. I'd venture to say, if you saw the eternal this evening, if you were to see the eternal through the lens of the baptisms we had this morning, if you were to see the eternal through the lives that are changed at the altar here week in and week out, that when you catch a glimpse of eternity, it'll give you context for the temporary. Maybe the greatest challenge that people in my generation have is that they make eternal decisions based off of temporary emotions. Well, I'm having a crisis right now, so I guess God don't love me, or I had a fight with my spouse, so I guess this marriage isn't working out, or I had a problem in my life, so therefore let me trade in everything that I have come to know and believe to be true because of a temporary crisis. Instead of the eternal shading the temporary, we allow the temporary to shade the eternal. Right now, whether you are aware of it or not, there is a ladder that exists by virtue of your faith in Christ. It's a ladder that goes with you wherever you go. It gives you access at any given moment of the day or night to the throne room of heaven to receive help in your time of need. There is more spiritual activity happening within and around you than you will ever even be aware of. But today, if you could open your eyes, you would see that the invitation I have from God to operate as his son or his daughter isn't just a 90-minute window on a Sunday evening in Seattle. It's a ladder that springs up from the inside of me wherever I go. Why is there a ladder? Because God is trying to get to you. Why is there a ladder? Because heaven is trying to come to earth. Why is there a ladder? Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
oh, I know you feel far, Jacob. I know you feel disqualified, Jacob. I know you feel distant, Jacob, but God's got a stairwell with your name on it and it's connected to your heart and he ain't letting you go until he makes a nation out of you. And I want you to see the fivefold promise of God to Jacob in this dream. Number one, I will give you land. Number two, I will give you children. Number three, I will bring you back. Number four, I will watch over your life. And number five, I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised to do. And you gotta see this tonight. With every promise that God makes to Jacob, he is dismantling a lie that Jacob has believed. Jacob tries to establish his own inheritance. Instead, God says, I will give you land. Jacob tries to develop his own legacy. Instead, God says, I will give you children. Jacob tries to protect himself by running away. And instead, God says, I will watch over your life and bring you back. Jacob, I am your supply. I am your inheritance. I am your strong tower. I am your provider. What you have attempted to manufacture yourself has only made a mess out of your life but now let me step into your story and watch what I will do on your behalf and here's what I love in the entire prophetic encounter that Jacob has with the Lord the only responsibility he has comes in verse 14 your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out. Here's what I hear the Lord saying to Pursuit for this season. Pursuit, your responsibility. In order to see the five-fold promise of God come true in the Pacific Northwest, your responsibility, Pursuit, is to spread out. Because if the container of our soul or the container of our church or the container of our mindset becomes too narrow, it will cause us to miss the offspring that God is sending because our vision was maybe only for three campuses, but God had four. Or our vision was only for a hundred prodigals, but God saw a thousand. Or our vision was only for an elementary school, but God saw a high school. Or our vision was only for a high school, but he saw a college campus. Or our vision was for a food bank, but he saw a hospital. How many times have we artificially limited the promises of God because the container of our soul has become so narrow based on the last missed expectation in our own personal narrative. And then we develop an injury towards God and we limit our ability to spread out to the north, the south, the east, and the west. It's interesting what Jacob sees on the ladder. The Bible says he sees angels ascending and descending. In Hebrews 1, the Bible says angels serve the people that God saves. In Daniel 10, the Bible says angels help wage spiritual warfare. In Luke 1, the Bible says that angels deliver messages from God, which tells me this, whether you believe in them or not, they are working on your behalf. And some of you are testing their patience. Watch, watch, verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, 
This is key. You gotta get this. You gotta get this. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other watch than the house of God and the gate of heaven. It's interesting to me that this is essentially the same feedback of the disciples in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. Surely that was Jesus who walked with us and we didn't even know it. Do you know that God is so kind and good that he will show up time and time again to provide rescue in your life and you won't even recognize it's him? <laughs> the night you wanted to take your life and all of a sudden a phone call randomly from an old friend or a pastor rings on your cell phone. Hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. What's going on? You thought that was just a coincidence. No, that's a supernatural God. <laughs> Watch. Jacob says this. This is the house of God, which is what we call the church. And this is the gate of heaven. It's a house where he dwells. Watch. And it's a gate that grants me access. The church is the house of God. It's a place where his presence dwells. You're going to get blessed just by virtue of sitting in this room. But you've got to understand that in this house, there are doors. And when you have the tenacity and the faith to open those, do those doors, you go from sitting in the house to exploring the house, to serving in the house, to giving to the house, to inviting to the house. See, the scripture says in the Father's house, there are many rooms or many mansions. And what designates a room as separate and distinct from the rest of the house? Usually it's got a door that serves as an access point. I've invited you into the living room of pursuit. That's called Sunday evening attendance at Pursuit Seattle. But friend, now it's time to start opening some of these doors. See, my concern is eventually you'll get bored sitting in the living room of your faith when you've got doors that signal opportunity to serve, opportunity to pray, opportunity to give, opportunity to lead, opportunity to volunteer, opportunity to invite, opportunity to help build, opportunity to be a part of the legacy that God is establishing in this place. I, I think we got an entire generation of Christians falling asleep because they never had the tenacity to explore the house. They got excited about a living room, but pretty soon the living room just became like any other room. I'm used to it. I hope somebody comes and entertains me in the living room tonight. I hope the living room looks a little different than it did last week. I hope they don't play the same songs that they played in the living room last Sunday. Who is here to entertain me because the living room exists for my comfort, my pleasure, and my constant stimulation. And I'm telling you, the living room was the first room that you walked into. But in this mansion, there are many rooms. And they signal many opportunities. <laughs> And I think sometimes maybe what people want or, 
or what, what, what people crave is that somebody else will always force open a door and then drag them into another room that they're not even happy to be in. And then we blame everybody else for the reason why we can't get involved. And what I've found to be universally true in the religious space over the last number of years working in this environment full time is that believe it or not, hungry people figure out a way to eat. I'm still having this experience at the Kirkland building. It's so dang big, I get lost all the time. I got lost today. I was trying to make it my way to the stage and I was going out the wrong door. They said, Pastor, where are you going? You gotta go down the stairs, around the corner to that other door that leads you to the place where you can walk up on the stage. I said, well, thank you. <laughs> there are still rooms that I'm finding. Can I tell you, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, I venture to say that there are some doors that are just waiting for you to knock on them. And when you open them on the other side, you will find exceedingly great opportunity that you never even dared to imagine that it existed. Don't camp in the living room when God's given you the title deed to the house. Don't just take residence in the living room and think that that is all it has to offer. That might be all that you have the courage to explore, but that's not all that God has to offer. He's got many rooms and many mansions and many doors, and he's just waiting for somebody to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking so that those gates can be opened unto them. A lot of believers get saved, but they never graduate out of that first stage of saving faith. And it's like, man, I'm grateful that you're going to heaven or that if Christ returns, you're going up into the sky. Man, I'm grateful. But so often we live below the level of our invitation because we become comfortable where we are at. Now watch what happens in verse 18. The Bible says this, now early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar or as a memorial stone. And watch, I love this, he poured oil on top of it. And he called that place, watch, Bethel, which means house of God. <laughs> I want you to see what's happening here because I think it's more important than we realize. Jacob isn't taking any ordinary stone. He takes the one that he had placed under his head. Watch, the one that he has used as a pillow. Watch, the one that he went to sleep on. He took, watch, that stone, which represented that dream and set it up as a pillar under this God. He poured oil on it and he said, this place will now go by the name of Bethel for this will be a house under God. Jacob takes his pillow and he sets it up as a pillar. And he says, from now on, watch, everyone who walks by this dream will know this is a place and a person who has met with God. Hear me, friend. The only thing God does when you give him your dreams is press them down, shake them together, cause them to overflow, and then give them back to you. My concern is that sometimes when we get a dream, it starts in the spirit, but then it continues in the flesh. And instead of taking that dream and rededicating it to the Lord, we add it to our resume to try to force ourselves into places of promotion our soul isn't ready for. And can I tell you the quickest way to double down on the dream that God has given you and see it explode in exponential fashion is that when God gives it to you, the first thing that you do is give it back to him. 
God, this was your dream first. Now I'm grateful that you allowed me to have it, but I'm gonna take this pillow, set it up as a pillar, dump oil on it, and name it as a way that memorializes what you have done in this place. See, some people, they have a taste of success. They have a taste of destiny. God answers one dream for them, and they're like, oh man, this is so awesome. Let me just camp here for the rest of my life. And I'm telling you, the greatest way to see God do exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine is that what he gives to you, you give back to him. Has God blessed you in your business? If you will give to him, that first blessing will seem like peanuts to the next blessing he's about to release. Has God given you a dream, an idea, a vision, something to invent, a relationship, a place of prominence, a place of influence, a degree, whatever God gives you, if you will offer it as a sacrifice back to him, he will use that as the setup for the next great thing that he builds and develops through your life. See, if I'm Jacob, I'm taking that stone with me. i never forget this. This is pretty incredible. I'm gonna carry this around just as a personal token to me so that I can always just remember the great things that God has done for little old Jacob. Isn't it incredible how good God is to little old Jacob? No, what he does is he takes that stone, he dumps oil on it, representing the spirit of God. And he says, now when the next generation walks by this memorial, they will know this is a place where God met with man. This is a place where God redeemed the dream of a broken Jacob. This is a place where God made covenant and made a nation out of a man who was a mess. This will serve as the inspiration for the next generation of dreamers. For when they walk by this place and see this altar set up, they will ask those around them, what do these stones mean? This was a time where God set up a ladder between heaven and earth. And if God did it for Jacob, God can do it for me. I'll be honest with you tonight. I remember for years in my life, and I still struggle with this a a little bit, but I remember for for years growing up, being scared to, to talk to God about my dreams or my future, fearing that if I gave him my dreams and my desires, that he would ask me to do the opposite. (laughs) God, now if I tell you what I want and you send me in the opposite direction, we gonna have a conversation and I'm not gonna be happy. But hear me, friend. If you allow that fear to dominate your life, it'll cause you to try to accomplish your own dreams in your own power. And if you would trust God today with your future, he would take the little that you see, infuse it with his supernatural might and send it back in greater capacity than you could ever imagine. See, in the Old Testament, the elders would set up pillars as memorial stones so that when their children would walk by, they would ask, why is that altar there? And it would serve as a testimony to a time when God intervened on their behalf. Here would be my hope for the people in this church that when the next generation walks by the fulfillment of your dream, the altar that they see would cause them to marvel at God's greatness, not yours. Still today, My kid's favorite activity is taking dad's phone and and scrolling through the pictures. And every picture represents 
a, a, a different story and they always ask the same question. What's going on here? What's happening here? Why do you have a picture of that? What does that mean? Who is that person? What is that building? I, I, I think about that a little bit in the context of, of Genesis 28, how in our digital world, oftentimes pictures, images, paintings, movies, media bites, they serve as memorial stones that the next generation observes. And it's my hope that as my kids get older, that they would say things like this, hey, hey dad, I, I was flipping through that old phone of yours the other day. I, I, I saw those pictures of when you and mom was looking real young and it looks to be the year 2024 and you were standing outside some, some, some huge building with a big parking lot in a, in a city called Kirkland with, with banners and signs and lights and, 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 and flags. And what was that all about? Oh, let me, let me tell you the story of when heaven came to earth on a ladder in the Northwest. <clears throat> and that one day, their kids would say, hey, hey, grandpas, I was looking through your closet the other day. I seen this, I seen this vintage sweatshirt. It says the phrase, revival or we die. What was that all about? Hey, let me tell you a story of a time when God came close. When his glory kissed the earth. When young men and and, and young women began to call on his name when a city was revived. To tell you the truth, I, I don't even remember the name of the pastor, but I'll never forget what God did there. What we are building, friend, is not for us, so that our children's children will know that there is a God in heaven who still answers by fire. And that's why I, I love being able to keep some of these historic properties in the kingdom of God. <laughs> it's not so like we can add another bill that we have to pay or add another property to our real estate portfolio. Like I love when people drive by the Kirkland building and they're like, oh, 30 years ago, that's where I got baptized. Oh, and I was there this morning and I saw my grandkid get baptized there in that same tank. Like, wow, God is faithful to every generation. It serves as a memorial stone that testifies about the goodness of God that extends to both Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and yes, even unto us. What we are building here, what we are contending for here is not just like a good time for like a bunch of freshmen and sophomores at the UW and like cool people and we gather and it's awesome. And then like in six months, let's get rid of this and do something else. No, no, no. What we are building here is a multi-generational legacy so that we can raise our kids in a revival environment and not have to beg them to go to church. That's what we are going after. That's what we are building. That's what we are contending for. When you give in this offering, you're not giving so you can have a nicer seat. You are giving so one day your grandchildren can be a part of a revival oriented local spirit filled church and they can experience the same power of God that you experience today. 
Now, I know that we all love the new songs and what's Bethel putting out, what's Elevation putting out, what Hillsong's putting out, but I love every once in a while when we do the throwbacks because I'm looking around the room at the people who were alive when those throwbacks weren't throwbacks, they were brand new songs. And every time that we begin to sing them, it's like there's something multi-generational that hits the room because people are like, oh, it's the same God and now the music might be a little louder and the lights might be a little brighter, but it's the same God, it's the same song that I sung so many years ago and watch, he is doing it again now, afresh and anew for another generation. I am telling you, friend, we are building something here, not for us, but for those who will come after us, that they one day will watch the documentary. They'll watch the 10-year anniversary video of Pursuit. They'll watch the Kirkland Grand Opening. They'll watch the Seattle Grand Opening. They'll watch the march that we did from Red Square to this place. They'll watch the ribbon cutting at the JCPenney. They'll watch the old photos from 126 Cedar. They'll pull up some of the old video footage from the barn that we first met in, and they will be in awe, not about the greatness of Russell's resume or the fantastic music or the good preaching or the great volunteers or the great things that we had or stuff that we did to the buildings, but they'll say, man, if God did it for them, I bet that God can do it for me. The best thing that you will ever give your kids is not a 401k. The best thing that you will ever give them is not a paid off house. It's not a brand new car on their 18th birthday. It's not a job in the family business. The best thing that you will leave the next generation is a ladder that angels ascend and descend upon because God's kingdom is still coming to earth. That's what we're building in Seattle. That's where we're building. That's where we're going after. That's why we worship and pray the way we do and believe for what we believe for. I, I, listen, I don't need Ballard because that's gonna make me feel more important. I just think that there's more people to reach. There's more legacy to live. There's another ladder to get set up. And when I pray for this region, what I see in my mind's eye is a map of the Northwest with ladders constructed in every neighborhood and every city and in every zip code. And the priority and the principalities of heaven traveling and ascending and descending. <laughs> And what's great about a ladder is it's not just giving God access to earth, it's giving earth access to heaven. <laughs> because it's when Jacob showed up at a, at a certain place. I don't know about you, but I believe that there are certain places that are set apart for moves of God's spirit. I think this building is a certain place. I think that Kirkland campus is a certain place. I think JCPenney is a certain place. I think the land that he's given us are certain places because they still hold the tears of people at the altars. They still hold the experience of people who've been impacted by the power of God. They still hold the memories of that person who got healed, who got up out of their wheelchair, who was saved from stage four cancer, who God opened their blind eyes and God healed their deaf ears. They still hold the memories and the stories. And we serve a God of intergenerational legacy. He does not forget his children. The enemy cannot snatch us out of his hand. And I think when Jacob shows up at Bethel, it's not an ordinary place. It's a certain place. I just venture to believe that maybe even before Jacob ever showed up at Bethel, there was somebody who had put sacrifice in the ground. There is somebody who had believed prior to Jacob's life and set that place apart as a prepared place for God's glory to come to earth. And I'm just telling you what we do 
here establishes a certainty. It establishes a pattern of the way in which God operates. And in doing so, it makes it a little bit easier for the next generation to encounter the things that we've labored for. Now watch, let me in here. I love this. Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow. And Jacob made a vow. Saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey that I am taking, give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. You ought to go and look up who the sons of Jacob were. Because the legacy of Jacob's dream lives on in the next generation. <laughs> I love this. God, I'm making a vow. If you'll be with me, you'll provide for me, you'll supply for me. And if you will one day take me back to my father's land, from this day forward, I'll give you a tenth, a tenth, a tithe of everything that I've got. Watch. Can I tell you why the tithe isn't Old Testament law? Because 350 years before the law was given on Mount Sinai, Jacob made a vow because he had an encounter. Of all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. Here's what I found. When people see lives being transformed, a region being reached, God being glorified, folks getting healed, saved, and baptized, when people have an encounter in his presence, it will motivate them to give without needed manipulation or pressure from the pulpit. There's something that happens in the spiritual realm when you make the spiritual decision to trust God with your finances. I can't explain it, but I promise you it works. Somebody told me once, they said, Pastor, we shouldn't teach the, we shouldn't teach the tithe because then it, artificially limits people to only give 10%. <laughs> I said, if everyone gave 10%, <clears throat> instead of renting Angel of the Winds Arena last year, I would have bought it. <clears throat> Here's what I'm saying, friend, is this. Look, <clears throat> when you try to modify your behavior without first having an encounter, all you end up in is religious dead works. But when you have an encounter, <sighs> the bills get paid. Because 10 years later, why do you, the oil still pays the bills. The oil still pays the bills. <laughs> I'm convinced that if we can set up a ladder in this place and the kingdom of heaven ascends and descends in this city, there won't ever be one building we can't afford. Won't ever be one staff person we can't hire. Won't ever be one volunteer cleanup day that isn't maxed out with people helping out. Because when people have an encounter, they're willing to take their dream and put it at the feet of Jesus. And take the oil of their encounter and baptize that dream that they had. Said, God, I'll give it back to you better is one day in your courts than, than a thousand elsewhere. I'm just lucky to be in the room.
I'm telling you, friend, over this next one to two month season, I don't know why I just keep saying this, but, but the, we have significant opportunities to construct a ladder that will serve as a multi-generational witness to a time where heaven came to earth. <laughs> we are living in the good old days. We are living in the times where historians will talk about in a hundred years, where people grabbed a hold to the reality of heaven and they refused to let go until God shook a city with his glory and with his power and with his might. We stand on the very precipice of another great awakening and we have never needed it like we need it today. And if we will seek the Lord while he may be found and if we will understand the hour in which we live, one day your children's children will ask you to tell the story of when God came close to a city and you poured out your life like oil at his feet and said, God, here am I. Send me Use me, my dream was your dream first, and I'll give my life in pursuit of your glory. Just rent the heavens and pour out your spirit without measure. This is the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So we say, swing wide, you ancient gates, and open up, you ancient doors, for the King of glory is here. Who is this King of glory? He is mighty and he is strong in battle. So we say, Seattle, you dub, Ballard, give up your dead, give up your prodigal, Give up your backslidden. Give up your demonized. Give up your infirmed. For the King of glory is here. Who is this King of glory? He is mighty and he is strong in battle. There's a ladder being built and it's not just for him to descend. It's for you to ascend. So come up higher, my beloved, and see the things that must take place. For God is not done with this region. And one day your children's children will ask you, tell me the story. And you'll have played a part in what God's about to do next. Let me pray for you.